0: Welcome to Non-Binding Guidance, a podcast series from Ropes and Grey, focused on current trends in regulatory law, as well as other important developments affecting life sciences industry, such as market access. I'm Lincoln Sang, a partner based in London and head of European Re- uh, Life Sciences Practice Group. I'm joined by my colleague, Margot Hall, a partner in our healthcare practice based in Washington, D.C., a leading lawyer in drug pricing, market access and reimbursement. Today, we will focus on the significant changes to the business and legal environments for drug pricing brought about by the COVID-19 pandemic and the impact on pharmaceutical supply chain and patient access to innovative, cutting-edge, preventive and therapeutic drugs and biologicals. Pricing and patient access to affordable drugs have been the subject of international attention recently. As a significant portion of healthcare costs is spent on drugs. Many of these drugs are highly innovative, targeted for individualized therapies, including those based on advanced therapies, as well as drug device combination where the cost of research and development, as well as manufacture, are high. Some products are manufactured based on specific patient genetic or biological profile and of utility only on an individual patient basis. The overall healthcare costs are predicted to increase in the coming years. So Margot, can you provide additional overview on this growing trend?
1: Sure, and thank you, Lincoln. Healthcare costs do continue to increase on a global level, although it's difficult to analyze cost data from the most recent few years in light of COVID-19 and the dramatic way in which it's impacted all of healthcare, including by creating this large volume of deferred care. Nonetheless, if you look specifically at drugs, drugs remain a key component in overall healthcare spend. One IQVIA report from 2021 found that total drug spend in 11 major international markets averaged across those markets 15% of total healthcare costs. Countries' individual spend rates ranged from 9 to 20% of those individual countries' total healthcare costs. What we're seeing is that drug list prices continue to increase, but I want to caution that the list price needs to be taken in context. So in the United States, for instance, many drugs are subject to significant discounts and price concessions off of that list price. As a result, if you look at net prices for drugs, net drug prices actually have gone down in the U.S. in recent years. There was a recent study of brand-name drugs across 10 large manufacturers that found that for the year 2021, the average list price changes were plus 3.5%, but the average net price changes were minus 1%. So we are seeing net price prices of drugs come down slightly in the United States, notwithstanding the fact that you do see list prices increasing. At the same time, There remains a laser focus on list price. And I think that's likely because it's the published price. So that's the price that's visible to the market. And the net pricing figures are generally proprietary and confidential and are subject to significant efforts to ensure that the confidentiality is maintained. So as a result to the general market, it's harder to understand the net pricing trends. Why do we see list prices increasing? Well, many reasons have been offered, including inflation, costs of sourcing high-quality materials, and the high cost of development and production of new cutting-edge therapies. And there also is speculation that some of the very same legislative changes that are attempting to address drug pricing and the perception that drug prices are too high may actually have unintended consequences of leading to higher list prices. If that's true, that would be a very important takeaway and cautionary note for policymaking in this space. Nonetheless, given the widely held perception that drug prices are already too high, any trend of rising list prices, especially since those are visible to the market, will become an increasingly hard pill to swallow for healthcare systems. And all of these concerns are only amplified by the COVID-19 pandemic. And I think that's such an important dimension of this overall analysis. Lincoln, we're now into the third year of the COVID-19 pandemic. How has this pandemic impacted the life sciences and healthcare industry sectors in general?
0: Thank you, Margo, for this uh, important question. COVID pandemic has shifted the general dynamics of uh, healthcare access and funding. During the pandemic, there was a significant drop in patient volumes to avoid COVID spread in hospitals and to alleviate pressure on secondary care so that resources could be deployed more effectively, effectively in managing COVID admissions. Deferral of medical care has now been recognized to lead to higher health care costs and unhealthier outcomes for many patients. In many developed economies, excess deaths have been observed as a result of delay in early diagnosis and medical interventions for certain diseases and conditions such as cancers. The scientific community now believes almost all outbreaks leave behind a proportion of patients who remain chronically unwell with symptom patterns similar to long COVID. This is what we generally know as the long tail of epidemics. New emerging Omicron subvariants are causing concerns in many countries that have called for new bivalent vaccines and antiviral agents to be developed, approved, or accessed with ambitious timetables. The return of some care deferred during the pandemic, the ongoing costs of COVID nineteen, as well as pandemic's long tail, will likely increase utilization in health care. The COVID-19 pandemic has caused a significant deterioration in public finances, adding to pre-existing strains on long-term structural challenges, including population aging, climate change, rising inequality, digitalization, and automation. The governments and payers start focusing on managing the long-term health of public finances by containing healthcare costs. In addition, COVID has posed significant challenges for supply chains globally. Lockdowns slow and even temporarily stopped the flow of raw materials and finished products, disrupted manufacturing and release of products. Healthcare providers and industry have invested immensely in developing predictive models such as AI, robotic process automation to address supply chain. So Margo, understand that there are a number of legislative and policy initiatives to reform drug pricing and transparency in the United States. It strikes me that there is an overall drive for direct government involvement in price negotiations for federal healthcare programs. Could you share with us your insight?
1: There has been that direct drive, and it preceded this dramatic pandemic and all of the tremendous market changes that you just described. But it continues now, and recently we've seen the results of that drive in the form of new federal law in the United States. The newly enacted Inflation Reduction Act is the most significant drug pricing legislation in recent memory, and it will have significant implications for the life sciences and healthcare sectors for years to come. It's a wide-ranging new law. President Joe Biden signed it into law on August 16th. And it allocates billions of dollars of investment to a wide variety of different functions and areas, climate and energy policies. It extends temporary subsidies for health insurance purchased through an Affordable Care Act marketplace plan. And it implements a new corporate minimum tax rate, among other items. But some of the law's most significant provisions, certainly some of the provisions that are garnering the most attention, are its drug pricing reforms. The statute's drug price negotiation program perhaps has received the most attention, at least among healthcare life sciences industry sectors, um, and certainly the most attention among the law's drug pricing reforms. For the first time, the Medicare program in the United States will have the authority to directly negotiate prices with pharmaceutical manufacturers for high spend Medicare drugs. Starting in 2026, for retail community pharmacy drugs, and two years later in the case of physician-administered drugs, a new cohort of drugs each year will become subject to a negotiated price, or what the statute refers to as the maximum fair price. The United States Department of Health and Human Services will annually select among those 50 drugs that have the highest Medicare spend over the prior 12 months to begin the negotiation process and it's a detailed negotiation process that ultimately results in this identified negotiated price that would take effect about two years later. Uh, What's interesting is although the law has framed this as a negotiation, the maximum fair price effectively operates as a price control To drive manufacturers to the negotiating table and compel them to agree to these maximum fair prices, the statute imposes substantial excise taxes in addition to also substantial new civil monetary penalties. So if a manufacturer refuses to negotiate or refuses to agree to the maximum fair price, that manufacturer has to pay excise taxes that can equal up to 1,900% 1900% of the selected drug's price. So that's up to 1900% of that drug's price for each unit sold during the period of noncompliance. Otherwise, the manufacturer risks having to terminate its various government agreements, thereby losing all benefits of participation in those programs for its entire portfolio. In the United States, where federal healthcare programs are an important force in the market those consequences could be financially devastating and so you know as a result it's somewhat hard to think of these negotiations as voluntary um, in in the truest sort of most ordinary meaning of that term this negotiation program is expected to result in significant savings to the medicare program the Congressional Budget Office projected that negotiation will save the government roughly $100 billion over 10 years. Um, that There are a lot of assumptions underlying those projections in terms of how the market might respond. And the pharmaceutical industry itself has said, look, these negotiations are going to curb investment in research and development, resulting in fewer treatments that come to market and fewer indications for existing drugs is all hotly contested, the extent of reduced innovation and whether any of those reductions are worth it in order to obtain the negotiated prices and the functionally lower government reimbursement rate, it's hotly debated, as are the, the spillover effects in the market. In the United States, this is a really new development since the government has not historically negotiated prices for the Medicare program. It has historically been a free market approach for purposes of that program. But I realize that in some other countries, this type and level of government negotiation is more commonplace. So, you know, Lincoln, can you share some thoughts on the European developments in this arena?
0: Uh, Sure. Um, Governments in Europe uh, have increasingly voiced their concern about high costs, restricting access to potentially effective novel uh, medicines. Uh, Most recently, uh, the the World Health Organization, WHO urges greater transparency in drug pricing, particularly in relation to preventive and active treatments for COVID. The overarching goal for the governments and payers is to ensure equitable and sustainable access to safe, effective and affordable uh, medicines and medical technologies. Payers now recognize that costly medicines are a growing challenge for national budgets as well as for patients. European payers are concerned that despite rapid pace in innovation, many patients do not benefit from innovative medicines because they are either unaffordable or unavailable. Policy is now being developed by European Commission seeking to address this particular concern by encouraging greater cooperation on pricing and reimbursement through exchange of information by improving transparency, such as guidelines on how to calculate the R&D costs of medicines in determining drug pricing. There is a greater impetus to rely on XTA health technology assessment as a tool to support the clinical added value and cost effectiveness of new technology as compared with a standard of care. In the UK, for example, the health economic analysis has been robustly applied by the HTAs to scrutinize the value for money of uh, medicine and uh, med tech prices. In addition, in order to strike a right balance between supporting innovation, helping to get the most cost effective medicines to patients expeditiously, Ensuring predictability on spend for the National Health Service. A voluntary scheme is agreed between industry and government that the amount of money the NHS spends on branded products is controlled or the industry refunded. This means that the branded products will bill, uh, uh, branded products bill will not grow by more than a percentage, two percent in any of the next five years. So, Margot, there is a great deal of discussion on use of real-world evidence in assessing therapeutic effects and value. What is the experience you have in the United States?
1: On this side of the pond, there is certainly a growing desire to look at that universe of data that is generated in the real world after commercialization and launch of a product. I think there's increasing recognition among many stakeholders that there is the stark contrast between on the one hand, the volumes of data that are collected and analyzed for purposes of regulatory submission when a biopharmaceutical manufacturer is seeking approval of a new drug or biologic. And then on the other hand, the evidence collection that takes place once the product's available on the market. That gap results in a loss of learning of what works, what doesn't work, and potential new indications And you can think of a variety of stakeholders that could have real value in having access to that real-world evidence. Payers might want the data to help inform their access and formulary decisions or to inform the terms under which they'll reimburse drugs. Real-world evidence also can be of great value to spur future research and development. But in order for this type of evidence to be useful to this broad universe of stakeholders, we need to somehow align the formats for data collection and come up with a framework for enabling appropriate data sharing. And those efforts, those initiatives will raise legal and business challenges. Um, notwithstanding that, I think it's time to roll up our sleeves and start tackling those challenges head on. I think there's there is increasing interest in doing so. And um, I think that momentum will will bear fruit is my prediction in the years to come um what's happening in this space in europe lincoln are you all ahead of us on real world evidence collection and analytics
0: well interesting question you have raised over here there has been a uh, significant interest uh in filling the gaps
1: left by the randomized controlled
0: trials and with data generated from alternative diversified uh sources real world evidence has been favored as an alternative data source because uh, it describes, in broad terms, data generated in real time from a whole range of different sources, including electronic health records, patient registry, and patient-generated data. With the advent of uh, AI, artificial intelligence, and machine learning, the data sets that these uh, uh, sources generate can be subject to sophisticated analysis uh, to understand more about drug utilization in the real world. In 2021, the EU adopted uh, a regulation on HTA, Health Technology Assessment, which aims at improving the availability of innovative technologies such as medicines and medical technologies. The regulation focuses on clinical assessments, which are typically based on global evidence. The regulation also provides the legislative platform to facilitate information sharing of registries of real-world evidence to reduce uncertainty on clinical effectiveness. So, Margot, early on, we discussed transparency in drug pricing. Many jurisdictions across the globe, particularly in Europe, employ a system known as International Reference Price as a way of harmonizing and containing drug prices. It is known that IRP is not without issues because Prices used in different markets may not be comparable due to geographical differences in the disease burden, approved indication, uptake, financial resources, et cetera. Foreign prices may not necessarily take into account different legislative enabling environments for innovation. What is your experience in the National uh, Reference price in the United States?
1: Well, it's an interesting issue that for the time being has become a bit less pressing. Earlier regulatory and legislative proposals that were related to direct government negotiation of drugs in the Medicare program featured some form of international reference pricing. And multiple stakeholders, pharmaceutical manufacturers, healthcare providers, patients, and others objected to those international reference pricing proposals for reasons among the ones that you just highlighted for all of us. Interestingly, what we have now, the um, IRA does not benchmark against international prices. And instead, it looks to discounts that um, are made available in connection with the Department of Veterans Affairs as one benchmark. So for now, in the United States, we're not looking at government negotiation of price dealings in a way that would take into account foreign prices. I think that's probably welcome news in some regards, but maybe... You know, a bit of cold comfort to biopharmaceutical manufacturers, given that there is a lot to dislike in this new federal statute otherwise.
0: Thank you, Margot, for sharing your thoughts. There are a number of takeaways from today's discussions. Although there are uncertainties in the future and the COVID uh, endemic world, a few things seem predictable. The role of the governments in, developing, in the development and procurement of preventive agents and drugs is likely to increase creating new government pricing pressures, even in markets like in the United States. Those pricing pressures will, however, need to be balanced against the continuing desire to safeguard a system to promote and incentivize medical advances and innovation. The role of the real-world evidence in informing cost-effectiveness will likely expand there will likely be a closer focus on patients' experience in determining the market access, which is often shaped by cost-effectiveness and affordability. Addressing patient access challenges strikes me as the next frontier to ensure that next-generation targeted and personalized therapies are adopted for clinical use. That's all the time we have for today's episode. And we want to thank you all for listening. For more information about our practice and other topics of interest, please visit our FDA regulatory and life sciences practice pages at www.ropesgray.com. You can listen to non-binding guidance and other Ropes Talk podcasts in our podcast newsroom on our website, or you can subscribe Wherever you listen to podcasts, including on Apple, Google and Spotify, thanks again for listening.